1: We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You heard her, go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network.
1: Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin.
0: Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Marilyn Moss Rockefeller. Marilyn is widely recognized as a successful and socially responsible business leader who co-founded Moss Tentworks with Bill Moss in 1975 and served as president and CEO of Moss Inc. until she sold the company in 2001. She joins me today to talk about her life and memoir, Mountain Girl, From Barefoot to the Boardroom. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Marilyn. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here, Marilyn. And uh, I'm curious. Where does your story as an
2: author begin? Oh, as an author, um, I guess it began when I was speaking a lot. Uh, This was in around 1999 and 2000 because the company had for it being very successful as a socially responsible business. And so I was invited to various business conferences to Give the story, the Moss story, and in doing that, I'd always at the end have questions and answers. And so many times, people would say, "Why don't you write a book? <laughs> why don't Ben and Jerry did it, and your story is as good, if not better than theirs? So why don't you do it?" And I combined for a while. So after sell the company, it was very successful. And, uh, four employees, which of course I hated to leave, and um, and I decided to go back to school and get a master's degree in writing, so that I could get some tools and structure for maybe doing the most story. So that's, that's that, that was not. I wouldn't say I was pushed into it because I I love to uh, write. Uh, it's just I had not really written anything that had been published or printed anywhere
0: right so you were encouraged into it not pushed into it you were encouraged into it i'd say
2: that's much better thank you
0: well tell me what's the backstory to to that business um that you ran and and you know i'd love to learn a little bit more about you know you mentioned you know sort of a socially responsible company i'd love to learn more
2: about that as well well i uh well actually was pushed into running the business uh I was married to Bill Moss, who was more of an artist than a business person. And my stepfather had invested some money in starting up a business that Bill had wanted to have. And uh, Bill lost uh, the money right off the bat and couldn't run the business. And so my stepfather said, get in there, Marilyn, and and get my money back out of there. And uh, I had two young children at the time. Absolutely zero experience in business, and I said, What? how am I going to do that and so I just jumped in, and what I used was my intuition and um I guess uh what I consider values that i had um, that I had acquired from my grandparents living with them in the mountains of West Virginia at the very tail end of the great depression and they were just these people that even though we we're in the middle of poverty it was never felt because we had a self-sustaining farm and they were their values were trust and caring and sharing and respect for everyone and i did those tricks so when i started to run the business um I just use those same values in my leadership role. And I that then why all businesses don't use it. Uh, it really does work. It, you have, you end up with a very loyal uh, and dedicated workforce as the result. So that's uh, how I ended business. And uh, there are many ups and downs and trials and errors and I wouldn't say I did everything right. I made quite a few mistakes, but I did learn from them. At least I believe I did. Yeah, it's, it's hard
0: to learn without making some mistakes. You know, I think oh, yeah. mistakes are, are sometimes our greatest teachers.
2: Right, exactly. You know, and uh, also I led with um, the fact that we were all together, that we weren't, I was not a manager. I didn't, wasn't from the top down. We did it together. We uh, we learned from one another, we taught one another, uh, we listened to one another, and it it really paid off. And, and that's what made the business successful.
0: Well, I know you've hinted about it a little bit, but I'm curious about the title of the book, you know, Mountain Girl from Barefoot to the Boardroom. So it didn't sound like you were necessarily bred to be a A business leader, it sounds like maybe your 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 path was somewhere else. Can you just share a little bit with me about your childhood and you know your your teenage years
2: oh god i think I think that the fact that I've had so many lifetimes i mean i am eighty three years old, so I've been through a number of them and never imagined being where I've ended up for sure. I started off um uh, my mother was a school teacher, and she couldn't afford to. Uh, care for me or have care for me and uh, so she left me with my grandparents uh, when i was 3 months old and i lived with them for 9 years before she sent for me and uh, i was pretty crazy hillbilly kid i loved climbing trees and uh, playing outdoors and with all the little frogs and things that i could catch and uh, usually barefoot <laughs> Uh when my mother finally sent for me, it, I was nine years old and I call it the transitional train ride because my grandparents put me on the train with a tag on my shirt, uh, my name and my mother's phone number. And, and uh, I guess they thought if there would be a plane wreck, a train wreck rather, they'd, I'd be identified. Um, and when I moved in with my mother in Maryland, uh, she decided that, of course, I had to learn to fit in with with more of the the children that were in that area, not in Elkgood, West Virginia. And uh, she taught me how to uh, sit to properly and eat properly, and uh, uh, cut off my braids, and curled my hair, and made me wear dresses and. Uh, had me pronouncing how now brown cow to try to get rid of my hillbilly accent. And it was, uh, it was not an easy transition for me. I missed, I missed climbing trees. I was going to say, it
0: seems, seems like you had a lot of freedom when you were living with your grandparents, um, a lot of freedom to explore and just kind of discover things for yourself. And and then you cut, you know, nine years later, now you're in a, so, sounds like a more structured world where she's trying to teach you to be someone who you, you you really weren't when you were with your grandparents.
2: That's exactly right. I mean, I, I think that was a period where I started to pretend and uh, try to fit in and be uh, who I thought I should be to be accepted. Uh, she moved a lot so that I was with many different ethnic groups and and uh, in Maryland and then in Connecticut. I was never in a school for more than a few months at a time, any one school, so that I would have to quickly, uh, to gain friends, just fit in. And that's the way I did it. I was just pretending and uh, until I could figure it out.
0: And I, I, have to ask only because I'm, I'm sitting at a, in a home in
2: Connecticut right now. Where were you in Connecticut? Uh, New Brit well for a, at the beginning, um, Holland, Connecticut, Tolland, Connecticut, Tallinn, Tall- uh, absolutely, Holland, yes. Connecticut, and uh, then Vernon, Connecticut, and oh, uh, New uh, New Britain, Middletown. She was an editor at the uh, Weekly Reader in Middletown. So we lived in an apartment across from Wesleyan. So oh, neat.
0: That's a neat little area to uh,
2: to uh, to grow up near. Um, yeah. yeah, it was fun because I could, you know, I played with the the boys because it was an all men school at that time, and I played football with them over on the uh, campus. was right across the street. And when Robert Frost came to speak in the chapel. One of the guys smuggled me in so that I got to hear him, and, and uh, so it was it was a good expo- exposure for me, for that's, sure. That
0: that's really cool. I I love the, that idea of you being smuggled into here, <laughs> probably yeah. one of the greatest poets and writers of, of- <laughs> absolutely.
2: Oh, I loved that. You know, and then I had to get a, books and read Robert Frost for a long time.
0: You know, I'm curious, you know, having, again, such a a contrast in childhood, you know, early days with your grandparents and then with your mom moving around a a much different structure. Did you rebel at all? Did, Did you, were you a rebellious teenager?
2: No, Michael, that's what I think is interesting. Thinking back on it. Why didn't I? And I think I was so hungry for my mother's attention and her love and, uh, that I wanted to please her. I wanted to, I wanted to be the good girl, the, uh, the one that she was proud of. And it, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I did anything at that time. Yeah. I was, I was
0: imagining you hitchhiking to
2: Woodstock, you know, (laughs) well Well, then of course, after my mother, I went to school and, um, in Ohio, uh, uh, she married a couple of times, and my last stepfather uh, wanted me to go to Mount Union. I wanted to go to Smith, and no, it wasn't allowed. So I went to um, the mi- uh, middle East, uh, Midwest, and I belonged to a sorority, um, which I didn't even know what what it was. And my roommate, my second year, was a black student. Um, And she was like the first female black student. There had been males because of sports and scholarships for them. And she was bright, attractive, incredible woman uh, at that time, girl, I guess. And we got along, had a wonderful time. And when it came time to nominate uh, other girls for the sorority, I stood up at my sorority meeting and nominated her and there was absolute stillness you could have and no one responded and no one would look at me and i thought what the hell is going on and the president finally said marilyn we can't have her as as a sorority sister and i said why not and they said because we can't accept blacks and i don't that wasn't the word that was used then of course and uh So I took off my beautiful quill pen for Alpha Z Delta that had pearls in it and threw it on the floor. And I said, well, if you don't want her, then I don't want you. And I left. And the next day, the president of the college um, called my parents and then he called me in and he had called them to tell them that I was having a nervous breakdown and that they would better come and take me home.
0: Oh my goodness!
2: Yes, exactly. So uh, yes, I started becoming rebellious, but f- for different reasons. Well, yeah, that <laughs> so I, absolutely, yes, reasons.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Good for you for for standing up for uh, for your roommate. And um, yeah, you think a northern school, and but but no, right? I mean, it's uh, I, I guess it's still Midwestern, but
2: it's Midwest. But, but but remember, that was back in the fifties. Yeah.
0: Memory. Right. Right. Yeah, if I, uh, we have an age difference here, I guess. So I I
2: uh age difference. <laughs> but thank you. You're <laughs> welcome. You um, know, from then, I went to the University of Michigan and oh, my God, what a contrast. And Ann Arbor in the 60s, when I was there a little, a little bit later, uh, was, you know, the avant-garde place going on really in competition. Well, not in competition, but on the level, equal to the level of what was happening on the West Coast. And New York was sort of left behind a little bit with this. And so a lot of people, Andy Warhol, John Cage, uh, Rauschenberg, um, uh, who else? I can't think. Oh, uh, yeah, I said Warhol. They all came to Ann Arbor, and I became very involved in all of this avant-garde scene. So Going from the mountain of West Virginia, uh, speaking hillbilly and not really knowing anything except my grandparents and living in a little town with one house, one school building, one church and one store uh, to this incredible exposure of the art world and, and the new um experimental art world and writing and music and art and everything. So it was it was a very exciting time, really exciting. Did you get to meet any of those guys? Did you meet anyone Warhol stayed with his gang, stayed at our house, and uh, I was married to Bill at the time, Bill Moss, and uh, they stayed there, and at 2 o'clock in the morning, this Volkswagen van drove up, painted with psychedelic colors and everything on it and 13 people climbed out all different color hair and whatever staying in our house we had only two bedrooms and i had my one-year-old son in one and we were in the other so they had to pile around on the floor in the living room and the next morning my uh well i guess he was two by that time jeff um he woke up and he was going around looking at all these different colored heads on the floor <laughs> for uh, probably about a half an hour before any of them rose. And actually, Warhol filmed one of his films out in our the well, it wasn't our field, the neighbor's field. um And then John Cage and Rauschenberg stayed at our house when they came for a musical presentation and. Um, he uh, ended up, because uh, he was a great uh, a mushroom expert, he went mushroom hunting and said he had invited a few people over for dinner. And would I make a dessert? I said, well, how many do you expect? And he said, well, I don't know, probably 30 or 40. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many showed up. But he and Rauschenberg made wild mushroom soufflés for everyone and kept making them, and I just kept making desserts and, and salads. Now, were these the funny mushrooms, or were these, like, you know? Well, they were, were supposed to, they were so supposed to be not funny but mushrooms, but I think he snuck a few in, and uh, some of the group got sick, and they had to be taken to the hospital. But, fortunately, I didn't need any. I oh, there too, you go. That was too busy. <laughs> yeah, making 30 desserts. So then, uh, you know, from that lifetime, then Maine. And Maine is quite different, uh, especially when I moved here in 1969. Um, you know, you couldn't get a decent cheese or any good French bread, which I was making because I had learned how to make it with uh, Julia Child when I was in Ann Arbor. And and um, no, so we can't, it, can't gloss over that. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean...
0: <laughs> I can't cross over a Julie Child. Uh, you just bring her up
2: as casually as you did. What was your relationship with Julie Child? Well, I was starting to really cook different exotic foods in Ann Arbor because it was a very exotic and uh, different um, environment. And uh, my mentor, uh, Pat Corton, who was older than I, probably maybe. Eight years, nine years. And um, she made the best French bread I'd had since we had been in France. Uh, well, that's a whole nother story with uh, the Ford racing team at Le Mans. <laughs> so, yeah. Wait, did you know Carol Shelby? It was, was he yeah. with you? With of course. Of
0: course. Of course. Because oh,
2: so. yeah. why wouldn't he be? <laughs> Yes, I knew Carol. In fact, I drove his Cobras uh, and took his uh, racing class at Riverside. Yeah, it was pretty exciting, pretty exciting time. So when uh, the French bread, (laughs) get back to that, um, Pat Corton wouldn't make it. It was so good. And I kept trying to make it because I was making other breads and flour, salt, water. That's all you use. And I thought, why doesn't it taste like hers? And I asked her if she would teach me. And she said, better yet, you get it from the horse's mouth. Julia Child is a friend of mine. We went to Smith together and I learned it from her. And so she got on the phone and called Julia Child in Cambridge and um, got me set up for her cooking classes. So I drove there from Ann Arbor and took cooking classes with her for four or five days.
0: Oh, wow. Now, if only you had gone to Smith College. Yeah, you, know, you might have you might have met her then, you know.
2: Well, no, she would have been ahead of me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, well, what's yeah, age is just a number. Um, that's uh, that's fantastic. This is this is quite the life you've had. Um, wh- wh- tell me more about the book, uh, Mountain Girl from Barefoot to Boardroom. Um, yeah, tell me what yeah, what, what else can you share about what all, haven't what what haven't you shared
2: with me yet about about you. <laughs> Oh God! I don't know i so much had happened um well, the thing too I want to share with the book is that I didn't start out to write a memoir. I was going to write the Moss story I think uh, and uh when I got to school to to do my master's um and the professors there said, "Wait a minute, or my teachers said, "You can't possibly." start talking about giving this small story without the reader knowing who you are. I mean, how how did you run this multimillion dollar business and sell it for a million, millions and with 164 employees without any business training? And we have to, the reader needs to know about you. And so I had to switch and start writing my memoir, which was hard. It's hard. I know you've written a a number of books, but have you ever written about yourself? I've I've tried. I mean, I've tried to write
0: nonfiction. You know, it's, it's, I mean, I write a lot of like marketing stuff. Yeah. Uh, But I don't, it'd be, it would be very hard. I understand what you're saying. It'd be very hard for me to tell my, first of all, I don't think my story is that interesting. But if I ever believed it were, I I think it would be very hard to do. I'd almost want to tell it to somebody else and have someone else
2: do it. Exactly. It was really, really difficult, Michael. And that, um, it took, well, in fact, I rewrote it, that book, 30 times. And so, what I do now to other writers uh, when I get a chance to advise is I say, please don't avoid editing and re editing. It's the best because each time that you go back and approach it again, I learned more about writing, how to write, and I also learn more about myself. And also, I could start really respecting that person, that little Marilyn Ray, and then that older Marilyn Ray, and then that older Marilyn, um, a little bit more so that I could be more honest, more truthful, open up more, be more candid. And um, that was really the what the book is about, but what I hope people take away from it it is one the business I write quite a bit on the business, and I think that businesses um uh really do have uh, the power to to be a uh, to be a um an agent'm trying to think of the word the agent of positive social change and that I feel it's almost a responsibility of businesses to do that. And then the second thing I was hoping that it would inspire um, young women or older women. Actually, I'm getting mail now from men who said it inspires them, which just blows me away. uh, That, you know, just perseverance and really really not giving up. You just have to really push through all those challenges to make things work. And my real father, who had taught me to shoot a gun at the age of six, started teaching me about how I can, I can do it. And so he just built that mantra in me, which was, I can do it. So every time I'd face a challenge in the business or in my life almost anywhere, I just use that mantra, I can do it. And that's the other thing I hope they take away. And and then this whole thing of uh, fake it till you make it, um, I'd like to change that a bit and say, fake it until you learn it. And that's what I think I did a lot in the business, too. I had to, again, fit in. I had to, in many instances, come across if I knew what I was doing when I didn't, Uh, especially dealing with men, you know, back being a businesswoman uh, back in the 70s uh, of a manufacturing company and in uh, Europe and uh, all over. Uh, It was not easy. And can i just pretended until i could make it
0: right right so many things to unpack there um a couple of things i just want to circle back to one is you know this idea of you know faking it until you learn it because i love that um but but i think under underneath that is this idea of persistence and yeah. and, and, and you perseverance, know and persistence and perseverance in so much of what I learned from authors, you know, and I know you have a, a business story to share, but but from an author's perspective, you need to have both persistence and perseverance if you want to get a story published. Right. If you want to go that traditional route of, you know, getting finding an agent, getting a publisher, you know, getting a book deal. You know, it's that persistence and perseverance are are gonna be your two best friends. Um because you if, if you don't have it, you know, it, it'll be they'll get disheartened very easily trying to, to get a book published. So that was the first thing I wanted to reflect on. And, and the second I'd love for you to go into more detail with is, you know, you mentioned going to get your MFA, you know, Masters of Fine Arts, and that seemed like that helped you tremendously when you were preparing a book. Um, I just would love, love for you to talk about how important that, that was for you and what you learned through a program like that. Uh,
2: it gave me tools um you know i I learned tools by uh the uh mentors who would give us exercises. You probably know how all this works and and they'd just give you a word and you'd have to start really working with that word and writing about it, no matter what and that's uh a little overwhelming when you're very new. I can remember the first workshop that I went to, and the word he gave was sweat. <laughs> I looked at these other writers, all much younger than I, and uh, and they were writing busily away, and I was just there, duh. <laughs> what what, are you, what are you about sweat? <laughs> it wasn't until a, near the end of the fifteen minutes or whatever that I finally got into it and started writing like mad, but yeah, you're, you're probably too busy sweating. Yes. <laughs> and so it, uh, the tools that I learned were incredible. Um, and the second thing that I learned was to really listen to other writers, you know, that listen to their work. Um, you learn so much from a being evaluating their work uh you learn about your own um, it's i i highly recommend it for anyone who wants to really put a book together and then of course the whole structure how do you structure a book how do you structure your writing how do you do that arc you know so that it keeps together and has this a uh, flow and energy and it keeps pushing and keeps pushing and um, those are things that I learned that, of course, I didn't know. I'm, I'm an avid reader, but I didn't read the same. Now that I've started writing, I read much differently.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm asking selfishly because uh,
2: an MFA is on my radar screen,
0: something I want to do. But I have uh, we have triplets, and they are in their final year of college right now. Like goodness, so I am. Uh, I cannot do anything. Uh, really, I can't even leave my house until they're done. Um, pretty
2: much... <laughs> what a challenge uh, triplets
0: <laughs> yes a challenge a wonderful challenge but you know uh you know a lot of people ask me uh you know was it easy having triplets and i say well i was faking it till i was learning it so I'm yeah like, there you go borrowing <laughs> that from you um well i'm curious i always like to get to know my guests a little bit more through um through pop culture and um I'm curious, when you were growing up, you know, did you, I know you spent a lot of time outside, but were there things, you know, that you liked to listen to or was there music you liked? Were were there TV programs or movies that you you kind of felt drawn towards?
2: Uh, You're forgetting my age again. (laughs) We didn't have a TV. We had one of those old radios that, you know, stands on the floor. And so my uncle and I, he was seven years older than I. Uh, would uh, sit by and listen to the Long Ranger and uh, Amos and Andy and, uh, oh, what was the one? That, oh, anyway, those those old programs. And um, in terms of music, it was live, that's all. And that a lot of my family uh, played banjos and guitars and fiddles, and so I was exposed to a lot of music. Uh, but it was that music, which was beautiful and wonderful. We had square dancing, and so you danced to it. And much different now than what we dance to.
0: I'm sure. Now, did you pick up any music, uh, musical instruments yourself back in those days?
2: Yes, I started playing the piano very, very early. In fact, because my when well, my my sister's my mother's sister, who was a lot younger than she piano. And so my grandfather had bought her a piano, which was left at the house. So I started on that and started taking they got me piano lessons. And I studied piano all through high school, college, and I still play.
0: No, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful gift to have. My mother, um, who's ninety, uh, still plays the piano and she it's the most beautiful sound in the world when I hear her play the piano, because her memory is shot, but she can still You know, play by ear, and she's got these melodies in her head that she can still get out of her head through her fingers and onto the keys, which is uh wonderful, it's wonderful, it really is. Um, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about um the Rockefeller part of your name, um, because I know you were Marilyn Moss, but now you're Marilyn Moss Rockefeller. Uh, tell me a little bit about that.
2: Well, you had said, Would you would could you imagine you? were marrying a Rockefeller uh, when I was a child in the mountains of West Virginia, I wouldn't have known what you were talking about because I wouldn't even have known who the Rockefellers were. And uh, in fact, I didn't for a long time. Uh, but it happened, and I'm just very fortunate. And the way it happened was that um, James Rockefeller, or Pebble as he's called, was on my board. He had invested in the company. And he was uh, one of the board members. And at one of the meetings, because I had lots of losses uh, at the beginning of the company, and uh, I gave the financial reports. And he called later and he said, Marilyn, you look very tired. And I know you're taking care of two young children and handling this business. You know, I think you need some diversion, and I said, "Yeah, well, like what?" And, well, he said, "You could either, um, well, you could have a hobby of some kind, or you could have an affair, or you could take flying lessons." And I said, "Well, a hobby, I can't imagine myself knitting. Two, I don't know who I'd have an affair with, and it's a very small town. and I don't think that would be appropriate." Now, my my husband had already left by this time, by the way um he so you left, felt you were no longer with him right he had left the business and the children, children and, and me and uh so i said well maybe i'll take you up on flying he was a pilot and he had a super cub which is a tail dragger and fabric plane and uh he said you take out insurance on it and of course pay for instruction i know a good guy that can really it's good a good in, instructor, and um, that'll be good for you, I think. And it was It was fabulous because, you know, once I got up in the in the sky flying alone, particularly, I could leave all the invoices and my children's needs and everything below, and it was um a wonderful feeling. But anyway, one day shortly before I went to get my license, my instructor called the company and he said, Marilyn, why don't you go and do some touch and goes at the airport? We have a local little airport um, before you go to take your test with the uh, FAA on Friday or Saturday. I can't remember. It was a few days out. And I said, no, no, Manning, I can't today because I have to go to the bank and get another loan yet and You know, and take my uh, purchase orders to get the money for a loan to pay uh, for the supplies and also for payroll. And he said, if you're you're not serious, if you don't go and do this. So I said, "Okay." so I went and I must have been slightly. Thinking about it just ever. What does it take? One second. Because when I came around in formation, it was a beautiful day, not a drop of wind, perfect. And I landed on the grass, which we do with these tail draggers. And perfect landing, I was very pleased, but I was using just a little too much right rudder, which had the plane turning a little to the right, and it went over into the grass. Soon as I knew I was off in the grass, I quickly used my left rudder and it torqued and I went up on my nose and came back down. And there was just this very, very slight little ripping sound, like you would rip the cotton seam on your shirt when you raised your arm or something. So I thought, oh, thank goodness I didn't wreck his plane car came screeching across the airstrip. It was the top mechanic who was a real character, an artist, George Curtis, who was a very good flight mechanic. And uh, I knew him. And he opened the door and he said, Marilyn, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I am, George. I'm fine. I just hope I haven't done much damage to Pebble's plane. And he looked at me funny and he looked past me and just to the left, I followed his eyes, there was a, a big trunk of a tree coming right up through the plane. Oh, my goodness. Taking out all the instruments all the way to the ceiling and had left um, splinters all up on the left side of my body. And George said, if you had been a half inch more to the left, you would have been a popsicle. Then I realized how serious it was. And my knees started shaking. We got out. The plane was a total disaster. The propeller was broken. The wings were smashed. The spars were broken. A mess. Got in his car, which he puts together from pieces off the dump. He never buys a car. He just goes and makes it. <laughs> so it's all patchwork. and get in his car, did have a seatbelt, thank goodness, and uh, he drives me back to the place where Pebble, Jim Rockefeller, had his air strip, which is on the side of a hill, and you have to come in over a pond, and there are mountains on both sides. So it's getting dark. We come around the first hill to go up, and a woman, oh, and his car sort of chugs along and he has to shift gears and try to get up there. And a woman comes speeding around and smashes into the back of us. My seat breaks loose and I go into the windshield and uh, he gets, we get out of the car and I say, oh my God, George. And I started laughing. I've never been in a car accident and I've never been in a plane accident. And I've been in both in the last hour. He takes the woman who broke her hand to the hospital, uh, and I have to walk on. Meanwhile, it's getting very dark, and I knew that Pebble would be quite worried because you can't land in this strip up here in the dark. And the flight instructor came around the corner to help me, and uh, he picked me up, And we drove up, and the house was completely dark. And out on the airstrip, Pebble had taken every vehicle he had on his farm, the backhoe, the tractor, the um, uh, plow, a couple of old cars, his car, and he had lined them up with their lights on both sides of the airstrip, thinking I would be stupid enough to try to (laughs) land the plane which would have been a disaster for sure, Uh, worse of a disaster. And uh, he had two flashlights. So he came over to the car, and I was crying, and I said, oh, I'm so sorry, I really wrecked your plane, and it's in bad shape. And he stuck his head in, and Michael, it was such a strange and wonderful moment. He said to me, planes can be fixed are bond. good people can never be replaced mm. and there were tears in his eyes so i knew there was something there and he, and he had said that for 2 years he had been in love with me but he didn't want to break up a marriage but after my husband had left um, he's now declaring his love so the I'm, flag course, has been planted yes very happy very fortunate I really, I'll tell you, I really lucked out. It's wonderful. Well, that's a a great story. And as
0: is, I'm sure, Mountain Girl, From Barefoot to the Boardroom. Marilyn, where can people pick up this book?
2: Oh, it's on Amazon, and it's in most local bookstores. I don't know where anyone is listening to you. And they can go on my website, which is MarilynMMoss.com. And they can also contact or or notify the publisher that's called islandportpress.com.
0: Very good. And uh, Marilyn, are you active on social media if people wanted to follow you? Yes, I am. All right. So I will be sure to put uh, your Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram handles in our show notes, as, as well as a link to where they can buy this book. Uh, Marilyn, thank you so much for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you. It's been fun.
1: Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.